THE INNOCENCE OF FATHER BROWN by G. K. CHESTERTON 1. THE BLUE CROSS Between the silver ribbon of morning and the green glittering ribbon of sea, the boat touched Harwich and let loose a swarm of folk like flies. Among them the man we must follow was by no means conspicuous, nor wished he to be. There was nothing notable about him except a slight contrast between the holiday gaiety of his clothing and the official gravity of his face. His clothes included a slight pale gray jacket, a white waistcoat, and a silver straw hat with gray-blue ribbon. His lean face was dark by contrast, and ended in a curt black beard that looked Spanish and suggested an Elizabethan ruff. He was smoking a cigarette with a seriousness of an idler. There was nothing about him to indicate the fact that the gray jacket covered a loaded revolver, that the white waistcoat covered a police card, or that the straw hat covered one of the most powerful intellects in Europe. For this was Valentin himself, the head of the Paris police, and the most famous investigator of the world. He was coming from Brussels to London to make the greatest arrest of the century. Flambeau was in England. The police of three countries had tracked the great criminal at last from Gant to Brussels, from Brussels to the Hook of Holland, and it was conjectured that he would take some advantage of the unfamiliarity and confusion of the Eucharistic Congress, then taking place in London. Probably he would travel as some minor clerk or secretary connected with it. But, of course, Valentin could not be certain. Nobody could be certain about Flambeau. It is many years now since this colossus of crime suddenly ceased keeping the world in a turmoil, and when he ceased, as they said after the death of Roland, there was a great quiet upon the earth. But in his best days, I mean of course his worst, Flambeau was a figure, with statuesque and international as the Kaiser. Almost every morning the daily paper announced that he had escaped the consequences of one extraordinary crime by committing another. He was a Gascon of gigantic stature and a bodily daring, and the wildest tales were told of his outbursts of athletic humor, how he turned the genre d'instruction upside down and stood him on his head to clear his mind, how he ran down the Rue de Rivoli with a policeman under each arm. It is due to him to say that his fantastic physical strength was generally employed in such bloodless, though undignified, scenes. His real crimes were chiefly those of ingenious and wholesale robbery. But each of his thefts was almost a new sin, and would make a story by itself. It was he who ran the great Trioline Dairy Company in London, with no dairies, no cows, no carts, and no milk but with some thousand subscribers. These he served by simply moving the little milk cans outside people's doors to the doors of his own customers. It was he who kept up an unaccountable and close correspondence with a young lady whose whole letter bag was intercepted by the extraordinary trick of photographing his messages infinitesimally small upon the slide of a microscope. A sweeping simplicity, however, marked many of his experiments. 
It is said that he once repainted all the numbers in a street in the dead of night merely to divert one traveler into a trap. It is quite certain that he invented a portable pillar box which he put up at corners in quiet suburbs on the chance of strangers dropping postal orders into it. Lastly, he was known to be a startling acrobat. Despite his huge figure, he could leap like a grasshopper and melt into the treetops like a monkey. Hence the great Valentin, when he set out to find Flambeau, was perfectly well aware that his adventures would not end when he had found him. But how was he to find him? On this, the great Valentin's ideas were still in process of settlement. There was one thing which Flambeau, with all his dexterity of disguises, could not cover, and that was his singular height. If Valentin's quick eye had caught a tall apple-woman, a tall grenadier, an even tolerably tall duchess, he might have arrested them on the spot. But all along his train there was nobody that could be disguised as Flambeau, any more than a cat could be disguised as a giraffe. About the people on, bo on the boat he had already satisfied himself, and the people picked up at Harwich or on the journey limited themselves with, with certainty to six. There was a short railway officer traveling up to the terminus, three fairly short market gardeners, picked up two stations afterwards, one very short widowed lady going up from a small Essex town, and a very short Roman Catholic priest going up from a small Essex village. When it came to the last case, Valentin gave it up and almost laughed. The little priest was so much the essence of those eastern flats. He had a face as round and as dull as a Norfolk dumpling. He had eyes as empty as the North Sea. He had several brown paper parcels, which he was quite incapable of collecting. The Eucharistic Congress had doubtless sucked out of their local stagnation many such creatures, blind and helpless like moles disinterred. Valentin was a skeptic in a severe style of France, and could have no love for priests. But he could have pity for them, and this one might have provoked pity in anybody. He had a large shabby umbrella, which constantly fell on the floor. He did not seem to know which was the right end of his return ticket. He explained with a moon-calf simplicity to anybody in the carriage that he had to be careful, because he had something made of real silver with blue stones in one of his brown paper parcels. His quaint blending of Essex flatness with saintly simplicity continuously amused the French men till the priest arrived somehow at Stratford with all his parcels and came back for his umbrella. When he did, Valentin even had the good nature to warn him not to take care of the silver by telling everybody about it. But to whomever he talked, Valentin kept his eye open for someone else. He looked out steadily for any one, rich or poor, male or female, who was well up to six feet, for Flambeau was four inches above it. He alighted at Liverpool Street, however, quite conscientiously secure that he had not missed the criminal so far. He then went to Scotland Yard to regularize his position 
arrange for help in case of need, and then he lit another cigarette and went for a long stroll in the streets of London. As he was walking in the streets and squares beyond Victoria, he paused suddenly and stood. It was quiet, quite square, very typical of London, full of accidental stillness. The tall flat houses, round, looked at once prosperous and uninhabited. The square of shrubbery in the center looked as deserted as a green Pacific islet. One of the four sides was much higher than the rest, like a dais, and the line of this side was broken by one of London's admirable accidents, a restaurant that looked as if it had strayed from Soho. It was unreasonably attractive object, with dwarf plants in pots and long striped blinds of lemon yellow and white. It stood specifically high above the street, and in the usual patchwork way of London, a flight of steps from the street ran up to meet the front door, almost as fire escape might run to a first-floor window. Valentin stood and smoked in front of the yellow-white blinds and considered them long. The most incredible thing about miracles is that they happen. A few clouds in heaven do come together into a staring shape of one human eye. A tree does stand up in the landscape of a doubtful journey in the exact and elaborate shape of a note of interrogation. I have seen both these things myself within the last few days. Nelson does die in the instant of victory, and a man named Williams does quite accidentally murder a man named Williamson. It sounds like a sort of infanticide. In short, there is in life an element of elfin coincidence which people reckoning on the prosaic may per perpetually miss. As it has been well expressed in the paradox of Poe, wisdom should reckon on the unforeseen. Aristide Valentin was unfathomably French, and the French intelligence is intelligent specifically and solely. He was not a thinking machine, for that is a brainless phrase of modern fatalism and materialism. A machine only is a machine because it cannot think. But he was a thinking man, and a plain man at the same time. All this wonderful success that looked like conjuring had been gained by plodding logic, by clear and commonplace French thought. The French electrify the world, not by startling, not by starting any paradox. They electrify it by carrying out a truism. They carry a truism so far, as in the French Revolution. But exactly because Valentin understood reason, he understood the limits of reason. Only a man who knows nothing of motors talks of motoring without petrol. Only a man who knows nothing of reason talks of reasoning without strong, undisputable first principles. Here he had no strong first principles. Flambeau had been missed at Harwich. And if he was in London at all, he might be anything from a tall tramp at Wimbledon Common to a tall toastmaster at Hotel Metropole. In such a state, Valentin had a view of a method of his own. In such a case he reckoned on the unforeseen. In such cases, when he could not follow the train of reasonable but cold 
strictly careful followed the train of unreasonable. Instead of going to the right places, banks, police stations, rendezvous, he systematically went to the wrong places, knocked on every empty house, turned down every cul-de-sac, went up every lane blocked with rubbish, went round every crescent that led him uselessly out of the way. He defended this crazy course quite logically. He said that if one had a clue, this was the worst way, but if one had no clue at all, it was the best, because there was just the chance that any oddity that caught the eye of the pursuer might be the same that had caught the eye of the pursued. Somewhere a man must begin, and it had better be just where another man might stop. Something about the flight of steps up to the shop, something about the quietude and the quietness of the restaurant, roused all the detective's rare romantic fancy, and made him revolve to, resolve to strike at random. He went up the steps, and sitting down by the window, asked for a cup of black coffee. It was halfway through the morning, and he had not breakfasted, and the slight litter of other breakfasts stood on the table reminded him of his hunger, and adding a poached egg to his order, he proceeded musingly to shake some white sugar into his coffee, taking all the time about fl thinking all the time about flambeau. He remembered how Flambeau had escaped once by a pair of nail-scissors, and once by a house on fire, once by having to pay for an unstamped letter, and once by getting people to look through a telescope at a comet that might destroy the earth. He thought his detective brain as good as the criminal's, which was true, but he fully realized the disadvantage. The criminal is the creative artist, the detective only the critic, he thought with a sour smile, and lifted his coffee cup and to his lips slowly, and put it down very quickly. He had put salt in it. He looked at the vessel from which the silvery powder had come. It was certainly a sugar basin, and unmistakably meant for sugar, as a champagne bottle for champagne. He wondered why they should keep salt in it. He looked at it to see if there were any other vessels around. Yes, there were two salt cellars quite full. Perhaps there was some speciality in the condiment in the salt cellar. He tasted it. It was sugar. Then he looked round at the restaurant with a refreshed air of interest to see if there were any other traces of that singular artistic taste which puts the sugar in the salt cellar and the salt in the sugar basin, except for an odd splash of some dark fluid on one of the white papered walls, the whole place appeared neat, cheerful, and orderly. He rang the bell for the waiter. When that official hurried up, fuzzy-haired and somewhat bleary-eyed at the early hour, the detective, who was not without an appreciation of this simpler form of humor, asked him to taste the sugar and see if it was up to the high reputation of the hotel. The result was the waiter yawned suddenly and woke up. "'Do you play this delicate joke on your customers every morning?' inquired Valentin. "'Does changing the salt and the sugar never pull as on a jest?' The waiter, with this irony, grew clearer, stammeringly assured him that the establishment had certainly no such intention. It must be a most curious mistake.' He picked up the sugar basin and looked at it. He picked up the salt cellar and looked at that. 
his face growing more and more bewildered. At last he abruptly excused himself and hurried away, returning in a few seconds with the proprietor. The proprietor also examined the sugar basin and then the salt cellar. The proprietor also looked bewildered. Suddenly the waiter seemed to grow inarticulate with a rush of words. I know, I know, those two clergymen. What two clergymen? The two clergymen, said the waiter, that threw up the, the soup on the wall. Threw soup on the wall? repeated Valentin, feeling sure that this must be some Italian metaphor. Yes, yes, said the attendant, excitedly and pointing at the dark splash on the white paper. Threw it over there on the wall. Valentin looked his query at the proprietor, who came to his rescue with full reports. Yes, sir, he said. It's quite true, though I don't suppose it has anything to do with the sugar and salt. Two clergymen came in and drank soup here very early, as soon as the shutters were taken down. They were both very quiet and respectable people. One of them paid the bill and went out, and the other, who seemed slower altogether, was some minutes gathering his things. But he went at last. Only the instant before he stepped into the street, he deliberately picked up the cup, which he had only half emptied, and threw the soup slap on the wall. I was in the back room myself, and so was the waiter, so I could only rush out in time to find the wall splattered with soup. It didn't do any particular damage, but it was confounded cheek. And I tried to catch the man in the street. They were too far off. I only noticed that they went round the corner into Carstairs Street. The detective was on his feet. He settled his hat on his head and his stick in his hand. He had already decided in the universal darkness of his mind that he could only follow the first odd finger that pointed, and this finger was odd enough. Paying his bill and clashing the glass doors behind him, he went and he was soon swinging round into the other street. It was fortunate that even in such fervent moments his eyes was cool and quick. Something in the shop front went by him like a mere flash, yet he went back to look at it. The shop was a popular greengrocer's and fruiterer's, an array of goods set out in the open air and plainly ticketed with their names and prices. In the two most prominent compartments were two heaps of oranges and nuts, respectively. On the heap of nuts lay a scrap of cardboard, on which was written in bold blue chalk, Best Tangerines, to a penny. On the other, orange was equally clear and exact description. Finest Brazil nuts, Ford a pound. Valentin looked at these two place cards and fancied that he had met this highly subtle form of humor before, and that somewhat recently he drew the attention of the red-faced fruitier, who looked rather sullenly up and down the street, to this inaccuracy in his advertisements. The fruitier said nothing, but sharply put each card into the proper place. The detective, leaning elegantly on his walking cane, continued to scrutinize the shop. At last he said, "'Pray excuse my apparent irreverence of good sir, but I should like to ask you a question in experimental psychology and the association of ideas.' The red-faced shopman regarded him with an eye of menace. But he continued gaily swinging his cane. "'Why?' he pursued. "'Why are two tickets wrongly placed in a 
greengrocer's shop, like a shovel hat that came on a London for holiday. Or, in case I do not make myself clear, what is the mystical association which connects the idea of nuts, marked as oranges, and the idea of two clergymen, one tall and the other short? The eyes of the tradesman stood up in his head like snails. He really seemed for an instant like he'd fling himself upon the stranger. At last he stammered angrily, I don't know what you're doing with it, but if you're one of their friends, you can tell them from me that I'll knock their silly ends off, persons or no parsons, and they'll upset my apples again. Indeed, asked the detective with great sympathy. Did they upset your apples? One of em did, said the heated shopman, rode em all over the street. I'd have caught the fool, but for having to pick em up. Which way did the persons go? asked Valentin. Up the second road on the left hand side, and then cross the square, said the other promptly. Thanks, said Valentin, and vanished like a fairy. On the other side of the second square he found a policeman and said this is urgent constable have you seen two clergymen in shovel hats the policeman began to chuckle heavily have i sir if you ask me one of em was drunk he stood in the middle of the road and bewildered that which way did they go snapped valentin they took one of them yellow buses over there answered the man and that got on to hampstead valentin proceeded his official card and said rapidly call up two of your men and come with me in pursuit and crossed the road with such contagious energy that the ponderous policeman was moved to almost agile obedience in a minute and a half the french detective was joined on the opposite pavement by an inspector and a man in plain clothes well sir began the former with smiling importance and what may i valentin pointed suddenly with his cane. I'll tell you on the top of that omnibus, he said, and was darting and dodging across the tangle of traffic when all three sank panting on the top seats of the yellow vehicle, and the inspector said, We could go four times as quickly in a taxi. Quite true, replied the leader placidly, if we only had an idea of where we are going. Well, where are we going? asked the other, staring. Valentin smoked, frowning for a few seconds, and then, removing his cigarette, he said, If you know what a man's doing, get in front of him. But if you want to guess what he's doing, get behind him. Stray when he stays, and stop when he stops. Travel as slowly as he. Then you may see what he saw, and may act as he acted. All we can do is to keep our eyes skinned for an odd thing. What sort of odd thing do you mean? asked the inspector. Any sort of odd thing, answered Valentin, and relapsed into obstinate silence. The yellow omnibus crawled up the northern roads for what seemed like hours on end. The great detective would not explain further, and perhaps his insistence felt a silent and growing doubt of his errand. Perhaps also they felt a silent and growing desire for lunch, for the hours crept long past a normal luncheon hour, and the long roads of the north London suburbs seemed to shoot out into length after length, like an inferno telescope. It was one of these journeys 
on which a man perpetually feels that now at last he must have come to the end of the universe and then finds he has only come to the beginning of tufnell park london died away in draggled taverns and dreary scrubs and was unaccountably born again in blazing high streets and blatant hotels it was like passing through thirteen separate vulgar cities all just touching each other but though the winter twilight was already threatening the road ahead of them the parisian detective still sat silent and watchful eyeing the frontage of streets and slid by on either side by the time they had left camden town behind the policemen were nearly asleep at last they gave something like a jerk at valentine's left erect struck a hand on each man's shoulder and shouted to the driver to stop they tumbled down the steps into the road without realizing why they had dis been dislodged miss retro reads is brought to you by anchor anchor is an app that helps you record your podcasts edit it insert music or sound effects or even background music there's so much more you can do with this app than i do and they distribute it wherever you're listening to it right now so thanks anchor